0: Wallahi genudu samawati wal wa kana lawu aziza hakima. Inna arsalna kashahida wa mbashira wa navira mi nu bin la heuli he wa wa And to Allah belong the soldiers of the heavens and the earth, and ever is Allah exalted in might and wise. indeed, we have sent you as a witness and a bringer of good tidings and a warner. That you people may believe in Allah and His Messenger and honor Him and respect Him and exalt Him morning and afternoon. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to season six of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. In this season, we are discussing 100 years of Middle Eastern history after the fall of the Ottoman Empire. This is episode 6 3 Hashemites and Saudis. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Great Britain officially receives a mandate over Palestine and Transjordan at the San Remo Conference. But Great Britain is already having trouble governing Iraq. Sharif Hussein, king of the Hijaz and leader of the Hashemite clan, does not feel the Allies kept their promises to him. France defeats Prince Faisal in the Franco-Syrian War and exiles him to Iraq. And with that, let's briefly discuss the history of Jordan. If you'd like to support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content then become a member of Islamic History Exclusive. We have two membership levels, one free and one paid. At the free level you get access to Season 0, Season 1 and all bonus episodes. The paid membership level is only $48 a year and gets you everything in the free level Plus additional content such as the story of Ibn Zubair, the life of Salahuddin al-Ayubi, and inshallah, much more to come. For more information, visit islamichistoryx.com. What is Jordan? The modern nation of Jordan is named after the famous river separating it from Palestine. After World War I, Britain received the lands east and west of the River Jordan, all of which they considered Palestine. The land east of the river was called Transjordan, which means beyond the Jordan. Besides the river, there were never any real borders separating the lands we now call Syria. Palestine, or Jordan. These were names the locals used referring to different regions of the Levant. This is similar to the regions known as New England, the Midwest, or Silicon Valley in the United States. Initially, Britain was not interested in Transjordan. All they really cared about was Palestine. Transjordan was not strategically important and was mostly barren desert populated by Bedouins with a few cities here and there. This wasn't always the case. In ancient times, Transjordan had been the center of the ancient proto Arab kingdoms of the Nabataeans. It is possible the Nabataeans may have been the Thamud mentioned in the Quran or perhaps one of their descendants. However, over the centuries, Transjordan declined. At one point, it was part of the Fatimid Empire before being captured by the Crusaders. Eventually, Salahuddin al-Ayubi took Transjordan from the Crusaders where it remained part of his dynasty for several years. We discussed Salahuddin's exploits in Transjordan in our series on his life. But whether it was the Fatimids, the Crusaders, Salahuddin, or the Ottomans, Transjordan was never more than an outpost or a way station. It was no different under the British. After capturing it from the Ottomans, they barely maintained a military presence there, only stationing a few civilian officials. The French, however, were very interested in what the British were doing with Palestine and Transjordan. When they were drafting the Sykes-Picot Agreement, the French made a strong case for Palestine believing, like most of the Arabs of the time, that it was all part of Syria. They were surprised by Lloyd George's plan to create a Jewish state in Palestine. In fact, many French officials thought this was some wild Zionist, communist, Anglo-Saxon conspiracy to undermine the Catholic Church. The French believed they were entitled to the entire Levant based upon the Crusader conquests hundreds of years earlier. Nothing is working out. By the summer of 1920, nothing was working out for the British in the Middle East. In Anatolia, the Turks did not seem to understand they had lost the war and were fighting against the occupation. In Iraq, several tribes had revolted against British rule. The British regained control by February 1921. By then, over 450 British citizens had been killed. And now, trouble was brewing in Transjordan. France exiled Prince Faisal Hussein to Iraq after his failed rebellion in Syria. Two months later, the British received reports that his representatives were in Transjordan. Not too long after that, they learned his brother, Prince Abdullah, was also in Transjordan with a small military force. This was a troubling development. If France thought the Hashemite brothers were up to something, they might use it as an excuse to invade Transjordan. Britain had almost no military presence there, and there was little they could do to prevent that from happening. Faisal insisted his brother was only in Transjordan to recover from some illness. The British were skeptical and were convinced Abdullah was planning to attack Syria. This was too much for Great Britain. They had to get the Middle East under control. They had to get Iraq to settle down. They had to keep the Hashemite brothers out of trouble. And they had to keep France from getting too nervous. The first thing they did was create a new administration in Iraq. Percy Cox, the British High Commissioner to Iraq, appointed a new Arab legislative body called the Council of Ministers. This gave the appearance that Arabs were in charge, though Britain was really running things from the shadows. Percy Cox even offered Talib al Naqib, the former mayor of Basra, a position in this government, but he turned it down. The second thing the British did was convene yet another conference. The Cairo Conference of 1921 The Cairo Conference of 1921 was mostly a reaction to the violence in Iraq. Forced to do some soul-searching, Great Britain hoped to figure out why the violence happened and how to keep it from happening again. The British were also concerned about developments in Transjordan. Though not as high on their radar as Iraq, they were worried about the build-up of Hashemite forces in the region. During the Cairo Conference, the British came up with several ideas, mostly from the mind of Winston Churchill. Churchill took advantage of the vague language of the Balfour Declaration and the Hussein McMahon Correspondence. The Balfour Declaration promised British support in establishing a Jewish homeland in Palestine, while the Hussein McMahon Correspondence promised an Arab Kingdom in Arabia. Neither document defined the borders of these imaginary places. Using the River Jordan as a dividing line, Churchill suggested giving the lands west of the river to the Jews and the lands east of the river to the Arabs. Winston Churchill had another bright idea. Sharif Hussein's son, Prince Abdullah, could temporarily rule Transjordan since he was already there. Prince Abdullah, who was also at the conference, accepted this proposal and agreed to rule Transjordan for six months. He also promised to keep the anti-Zionist elements there under control. Winston Churchill also had a plan for Iraq. Why not make Prince Faisal, the former self-proclaimed king of Syria, the new king of Iraq? This would solve many problems. The Arabs of Iraq would be more inclined to follow a fellow Arab. Putting Faisal in Iraq would keep him out of trouble in Transjordan and Syria. And, with Faisal in Iraq and Abdullah in Transjordan, the British could finally stop feeling guilty for the Sykes-Picot Agreement. Despite Winston Churchill's confidence in this plan, there were some British officials who did not like it. The British High Commissioner for Palestine did not believe Great Britain had the right to divide it into two nations. According to him, this was something only the League of Nations could do. Prime Minister Lloyd George also disagreed with Churchill's plan. He was concerned France would get suspicious about two Hashemite brothers ruling lands bordering Syria. But Winston Churchill brushed these concerns aside. Later, when he presented his plan to the British cabinet, he gave all the reasons his plan was the best way forward. Prince Abdullah could contain the anti-French and anti-Zionist elements in Transjordan. And, since Abdullah was only a temporary ruler, Great Britain did not have to commit to supporting him. Once Abdullah was no longer useful, they could replace him with someone else. And most importantly... This would save Britain the trouble of sending troops to occupy Transjordan. T.E. Lawrence supported Churchill's plan. He added that since Abdullah was not from Transjordan, he'd have to rely on the British, making him easier to control. The British also slightly changed their stance on Zionism and their interpretation of the Balfour Declaration. The Arabs in the Middle East were not happy about the British carving out a Jewish state in Palestine. In response to these growing anti-Zionist feelings in Arabia, Winston Churchill released a report in June 1922. In it, he stated that the Balfour Declaration was not intended to turn all of Palestine into a Jewish state. Churchill interpreted it as a promise to create a Jewish home within Palestine. That is a critical difference. Zionists in Britain and Palestine protested Churchill's reinterpretation. By this time, the Jewish population in Palestine was already up to 80,000 with their own political organizations and elected officials. No matter how the British spun it, however, the problems in Palestine were not going away anytime soon. Faisal in Iraq T.E. Lawrence worked with the esteemed British explorer and Middle East expert Gertrude Bell on a plan to install Faisal as king of Iraq. Gertrude Bell's extensive travels through the Middle East made her an expert on the region. Like T.E. Lawrence, she supported the Hashemite family and felt they'd make perfect British clients to rule over the Middle East. Everything about Iraq was made up by the British. There was no nation called Iraq. There was no kingdom of Iraq. Prince Faisal was not from Iraq, and no one in Iraq wanted him as their king. The British made it all up. To cover the fact they made this all up, the British had to make Faisal's ascendancy to the non-existent throne of Iraq look organic. They did not want Faisal to look like a British puppet, though that is exactly what he was. Throughout the spring of 1921, Gertrude Bell and T.E. Lawrence put their plan into action. First, Faisal, who was currently residing in London, secretly traveled to Mecca where his father was king of the Hijaz. Once in Mecca, Faisal sent several telegrams to Arab leaders in Iraq stating the people there were inviting him to be their leader. On June 24, 1921, Faisal arrived in Basra and began campaigning for the throne that did not yet exist. While Faisal was working to win popular opinion, the British remained quiet, pretending to be neutral. Of course, they were funding Faisal's campaign the whole time. All of these shenanigans were pointless. Prince Faisal, who was born and raised in the Hejaz, was trying to rule over people he had no real connection to. Most Iraqis did not support Prince Faisal. For instance, the Kurds centered around Mosul to the north. Since they did not want to be ruled by Arabs, they boycotted most of the political proceedings. Talib al-Naqib, the former mayor of Basra, was also opposed to Faisal's political ambitions. Though he was concerned about his own political prospects, at least Talib al-Naqib had a legitimate connection to Iraq. Talib al Nakib spent the summer of 1921 drumming up support, criticizing Faisal, and speaking out against the British occupation. Eventually, Gertrude Bell got tired of Talib al Nakib and had him arrested and exiled. The established local elite, whose families had been involved in Iraqi politics for generations, were also opposed to Faisal. They suggested several alternatives to the British, such as bringing in former Ottoman officials to help administer Iraq, or perhaps turning Iraq into a republic rather than a monarchy. Some suggested dividing the mandate into two separate nations, Basra and Baghdad. A few even preferred letting the British directly rule Iraq like they did India. But the British would have none of it. They were determined to install their fake king over their fake country. Abdul Aziz ibn Saud, ruler of the Najd, was also opposed to Faisal. Though the Saudis and Hashemites were both British clients, the two families had a long-standing rivalry. With Faisal's brother, Prince Abdullah, in Transjordan, and his father, Sharif Hussein in the Hijaz, Abdulaziz did not want yet another Hashemite state in Arabia. He threatened to invade Iraq and Transjordan if this happened. The Saudi threat never materialized. The British simply increased Abdulaziz's payments to keep him quiet while Faisal took over Iraq. The following year, they signed the Oker Protocol, establishing the borders between Iraq and Saudi territory. With these objections out the way, things began to move pretty quickly. On July 11, 1921, the Council of Ministers declared Faisal the constitutional king of Iraq. However, since they believed in democracy, the Iraqi people had to confirm this. On August 18, 1921, the votes came in and Faisal won with 96% of the electorate. This election was almost certainly influenced by the British. Finally, on August 23, 1921, Mesopotamia was officially renamed Iraq, and Faisal ibn al-Hussein ibn Ali al hashemiya was crowned as its first king. Problems with Churchill's plan It did not take long for the cracks in Winston Churchill's plan to begin showing. Prince Abdullah in Transjordan was a weak ruler over a people who did not recognize his authority. As predicted, Abdullah depended heavily on the British for support. When he begged for British help putting down a small revolt, Churchill was ready to get rid of him. It was all T.E. Lawrence could do to convince Churchill that Abdullah was cheaper than sending a full battalion to Transjordan. And just like Lloyd George had predicted, France was suspicious of all these strange moves by the British. When the French protested, the British office in Cairo assured them that Abdullah's presence in Jordan made Syria safer. This proved to be at least partially false when a French general was killed in Syria his murderers were later reportedly walking about freely in amman but the biggest problem for the british at least was neither abdullah in transjordan nor his brother faisal in iraq it was their father sharif hussein ibn ali in the hijaz while his two sons went along with britain's shenanigans sharif hussein was still angry about the sykes-picot agreement The old man and the British Empire were in a war of wills. He demanded the British honor their promises and make him king of Arabia and not just king of the Hijaz. Sharif Hussein did not care about his sons ruling over Iraq and Transjordan. As far as he was concerned, these were just pathetic attempts by the British to turn his sons against him. The Hejaz, Transjordan, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and Palestine were all supposed to be part of his kingdom. That's what the British had promised him. And until they lived up to that promise, he refused to cooperate with any of their shenanigans. He refused to sign the Treaty of Versailles, stating he could never agree to give Palestine to the Jews and Syria to the French. They might take it, but he'd never give it away. He also refused to sign the Treaty of Sevra acknowledging the breakup of the Ottoman Empire. The British retaliated by suspending his £30,000 stipend. And now, with Iraq and Transjordan at least somewhat stabilized, the British tried one last time to patch things up with their former ally. The new agreement the British offered Sharif Hussein, called the Anglo-Hijazi Treaty, tried to meet him halfway in his demands. This treaty recognized his sovereignty but did not define any specific borders and left out any mention of the French in Syria. The treaty also left out any reference to the Balfour Declaration and Jewish colonization of Palestine. The British also promised to release his stipend and give him an additional 100,000 pounds. If he signed the treaty, Sharif Hussein would not have to acknowledge the Balfour Declaration, Zionist colonization of Palestine, or the French mandate in Syria. All he had to do was acknowledge the British mandates in Iraq, Transjordan, and Palestine. The British desperately wanted Sharif Hussein to sign the treaty. They even sent T.E. Lawrence to try to convince him. If Sharif Hussein signed the treaty, It would legitimize British activities in the Middle East. As the colonial rulers of India, Great Britain ruled over millions of Muslims. They did not want to be perceived as colonizing the heart of the Muslim world. But no matter what they offered or how much they begged, Sharif Hussein refused to sign the treaty. He felt honor-bound to defy the British until they lived up to their promises. Not only was his honor at stake, but also the honor of all Arabs. From Sharif Hussein's perspective, the British had made promises to the Arabs, the French, and the Zionists. The French got Syria, the Zionists got Palestine, but the Arabs got cheated. Of course, this was not entirely true. The British were literally creating new Arab nations out of thin air, but Sharif Hussein did not see it that way. His sons, Prince Faisal and Prince Abdullah, were younger and more pragmatic. They had seen the might of the British and French empires in action and they knew there was no way to stand up against them. Unlike their father, they were willing to go along with the Europeans and get what they could now and perhaps demand more later. The British finally decided they'd be better off working with the younger Hashemites. They cut off communications with Sharif Hussein and got Prince Abdullah to sign the treaty instead. The Origins of the Hashemites Sharif Hussein was the head of the Hashemite family, an ancient Arab tribe that claimed to be descended from Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. The Hashemites had ruled Mecca for centuries, even before the Ottoman Empire existed. Their line began when the Fatimid general, Jafar ibn Muhammad al-Hassani, conquered Mecca in 968 CE. Since then, four different Hashemite clans have ruled Mecca. The Musawid, the Sulaymanids, the Hawashims, and finally, Banu Kotada. Banu Qatada came into power in 1205 when they were recognized as rulers of Mecca by Salahuddin's brother, Togtogin ibn Ayyub, ruler of the Ayyubid Empire. As the centuries passed, the Ayyubids were replaced by the Mamluks, who were then replaced by the Ottomans. When the Ottomans came into power in 1517, the ruler of Mecca was Sharif Barakat of the Banu Qatada clan. Sharif Barakat sent his son to the Ottoman Sultan in Cairo with gifts and the keys to the city, a dignified and subtle act of submission. The Sultan accepted the gifts and confirmed Sharif Barakat and his sons as rulers of Mecca. The British began getting involved in the affairs of the Hijaz in the late 18th century. As usual, they exploited divisions within the Muslim community. Over the centuries, the Banu Qatada clan that ruled Mecca had split into two rival sub-clans, the Aoun clan and the Zayd clan. In 1880, the governor of the Hijaz, a member of the Aoun sub-clan, was assassinated. The Ottoman sultan, Abdul Hamid II, suspected the dead governor had been working with the British and refused to appoint Aoun al-Rafiq, his brother, as successor. Instead, hoping to limit British interference and strengthen Ottoman authority in the Hijaz, the Sultan appointed Abdul Muttalib ibn Ghalib from the rival Zayd clan. The British audaciously tried to block the Sultan's pick. Their consul in Jeddah wrote the Sultan to inform him it was in Britain's interest for Alnur Rafiq to govern the Hijaz. They praised him as an enlightened man while denouncing the Sultan's pick as a and fanatic that hated Christians and foreigners. The British ambassador to the Ottoman Empire also tried to sway the Sultan. He insisted Sultan Abdul Hamid pick someone else besides Ibn Khalib. Sultan Abdul Hamid denied both of these requests stating that the decision had already been made. However, when Ibn Ghalib died in 1186, he went on to appoint Al-Nur-Rafiq as governor of the Hijaz to appease the British. Al-Nur-Rafiq died in 1905 and his nephew Ali ibn Abdullah replaced him. Three years later, the young Turks took over the Ottoman government in Istanbul. Among the sweeping changes they made was deposing Ali ibn Abdullah and sending him into exile where he died in 1941. Sultan Abdul Hamid II, now relegated to figurehead status after the Young Turk Revolution, appointed Sharif Hussein ibn Ali as governor of the Hejaz in 1908. The following year, Sultan Abdul Hamid's supporters staged a brief counter-revolution against the Young Turks. When the Young Turks regained control, they deposed Sultan Abdul Hamid II in favor of his brother, Mehmed V. As Arab and Turkish nationalism divided the empire, the relationship between Sharif Hussein and the Young Turks deteriorated. Fearing the Young Turks would eventually depose and execute him, Sharif Hussein decided to collaborate with the British during World War I, which led to the broken promises mentioned earlier. The Young Turk Revolution and Sharif Hussein's decision to revolt were both discussed in the previous season. Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab The Hashemite family was just one of three prominent families involved in modern Arabian history. There was also the Rashidi family who ruled over most of Central and Eastern Arabia for generations as Ottoman vassals. We'll discuss the Rashidis more in the next episode. And there was also the Saudis, who were rivals of both the Rashidis and the Hashemites. Many people are under the mistaken impression that the Saudi dynasty is a recent phenomenon. Actually, their prominence in Arabia goes back nearly 300 years when they allied with a local Islamic scholar named Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab was born in 1703 in the village of Oyena in Wadi Hanifa in Central Arabia, just north of Riyadh. Abdul Wahhab studied under the famous Indian scholar Muhammad Hayat Asindi, hailing from what is now modern Pakistan. Muhammad Hayat was a prominent Hadith scholar and member of the Naqshbandi Sufi Tariqah. This is interesting considering Abdul Wahhab's legendary intolerance for Sufism. Abdul Wahhab also studied in Basra where it is believed he became influenced by the teachings of Ibn Taymiyyah. Ibn Taymiyyah, who lived in the 14th century, was one of the most dynamic Muslim scholars of all time. His strict, literalist interpretation of the Quran made him popular, but also got him in trouble with the political establishment of his time. Even though Ibn Taymiyyah spent much of his life in prison, he somehow found the time to teach and fight the Mongols when they invaded the Middle East. Ibn Kathir and Adhahabi are two famous scholars who studied under Ibn Taymiyyah. Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab took ibn Taymiyyah's teachings to heart and was convinced the Muslims of Arabia had polluted Islam by adopting heterodox practices. And the practice he hated the most was the building and venerating of tombs dedicated to deceased Muslim scholars. In many parts of the Muslim world, even today, It is a popular practice to build large structures over the graves of deceased scholars and saints. The more popular the individual, the more elaborate the building. These buildings, which are often built near mosques, attract Muslim worshippers who believe the graves of these saints are blessed. Some Muslims offer prayers in these structures, believing their proximity to the dead saint improved their chances of being accepted by Allah. From there, it is only a short leap of logic before some Muslims wind up actually worshipping the inhabitants of the grave. There are many ahadith, or sayings of Prophet Muhammad, prohibiting such structures. For instance, This translates to, Abu Sa'id narrated that the Prophet, prayers and peace be upon him, forbade building on the graves. Abdul Wahhab believed erecting buildings or tombs over graves not only violated the Prophet's commandments, but also led to worshipping the dead. When he completed his studies, Abdul Wahhab returned to his village in Central Arabia and began teaching his literalist interpretation of Islam. At first, the governor of Uyayna accepted Abdul Wahab's teachings and let the young man have his way. But when Abdul Wahab began destroying the graves of local saints, it attracted unwanted attention. It is said he even destroyed the grave of Zayd ibn al-Khattab, brother of the second caliph, Omar ibn al-Khattab. These actions caused an outcry and someone complained to the ruler of al hasa in eastern Arabia, who ordered his subordinate in Uyayna to exile Abdul Wahab. Forced out of his home, Abdul Wahab moved to the town of ad on the outskirts of Riyadh. Once there, he connected with the local governor, a man named Muhammad ibn Saud. The First Saudi State Initially, Muhammad ibn Saud was skeptical about Abdul Wahab's literalist teachings. But the more he studied them, the more they made sense. In 1744, the two men decided to work together and declared war on Arabia. Muhammad ibn Saud was the muscle, while Abdul Wahab was the ideologist holding the movement together. This relationship would last for centuries, even until today. When Muhammad ibn Saud died in 1765, his son Abdul Aziz ibn Muhammad became the leader of the Saudi family. Abdul Aziz was even more devoted to Abdul Wahab's teachings than his father had been. In 1773, Abdul Aziz sent a message to the governor of Riyadh encouraging him to accept Abdul Wahab's teachings. The governor refused and insulted Abdul Aziz ibn Muhammad who then led an attack on Riyadh. Abdul Aziz was victorious and the first Saudi state was born. Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab died in 1793, but that did not stop the Saudis. Two years later, they fought the ruler of Al Hasa. Even though they had inferior equipment, the Saudis won a series of victories, bringing most of Eastern Arabia under their control. As they took over Eastern Arabia, the Saudi forces made sure to destroy any elaborate graves and tombs they came across. They are even accused of destroying the graves of prominent Sahaba such as Talha ibn Ubaydullah and Hassan ibn Ali. It is important to clarify a specific point. When we say they destroyed graves, they generally did not dig up the bodies. They only destroyed the crypt, mausoleum, or any other structures built around the grave. The Saudis rolled north, capturing Karbala and Najaf in modern-day Iraq. If the Saudi forces were harsh against their fellow Sunni Muslims of Arabia, they were absolutely brutal with the Shiites. Declaring them rawafid or rejectionists, the Saudis destroyed hundreds of Shiite sites, tombs, and mosques. By the time they were done, nearly 2,000 Shias were dead. With eastern Arabia under their control, the Saudis turned west towards the Hijaz. In 1802, they captured Taif, plundering the city and killing another 200 people. Not long afterwards, Abdulaziz was assassinated and his son, Saud ibn Abdulaziz, took over. In 1803, Saud ibn Abdulaziz and his forces changed into Ihram and marched into Mecca. Ihram is the traditional garb of Muslims making the Hajj pilgrimage. Once the Saudis had control of Mecca, they again destroyed all the religious sites and tombs they considered heretical. This situation repeated itself two years later when the Saudis invaded Medina in 1805. Once in control, the Saudis again destroyed the tombs and graves of Muslim scholars and saints. Some even attempted to destroy the prophet's grave. The Ottoman sultan was embarrassed by the loss of the two holy cities. However, the Ottoman Empire was too busy fighting the Russians to deal with the Saudi threat. Instead, the sultan turned to his vassal, Muhammad Ali Pasha, the semi-independent ruler of Egypt. Muhammad Ali Pasha sent an army under the command of his son, Ibrahim Pasha, to retake the Hijaz. The Egyptian army left in 1811 and by 1812 had captured Medina, Mecca, and Taif from the Saudis. The Egyptians chased the Saudis all the way to Tarba, where the Najd of Central Arabia meets the Hijaz of Western Arabia. In Tarba, the Saudis finally beat the Egyptians in battle. This was a significant victory, but it was short-lived. Saud ibn Abdulaziz died the following year and his son Abdullah ibn Saud became the new Saudi leader. In 1815, Ibrahim Pasha struck deals with the Bedouins of the Najd who joined him in the fight. With Bedouin assistance, the Egyptians dealt several crushing blows on the Saudis. Abdullah ibn Saud tried to negotiate a peace deal, but Ibrahim Pasha would have none of it. He wanted to finish the Saudis off once and for all. The Egyptians continued to pound the Saudis, forcing them back to their capital, ad where Muhammad ibn Saud and Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab first met over a hundred years earlier. In 1818, Ibrahim Pasha captured ad and the first Saudi state came to an end. Abdullah ibn Saud was arrested and sent first to Cairo and then on to Istanbul. There, the Ottoman sultan ordered him publicly executed in front of the Hagia Sophia. In the next episode, we will discuss the origins of the Egyptian family that defeated the first Saudi state. We will also see how the Saudis responded to this early defeat. So you know I like big ideas. This podcast that um, we have here, the Islamic History Podcast, we talk about a lot of big ideas, politics and geopolitics and society and culture and things like that. So if you're like me and you like talking talking about big ideas or hearing big ideas, hearing discussions about big ideas, I would suggest and recommend you listen to another podcast, not mine, another one, called Café Tanwir. Uh, You know how to spell cafe Tanweer is T-A-N-W-E-E-R Cafe Tanweer is a podcast that's all about exchanging thoughts with Muslims of various personal and professional backgrounds they uh, discuss a range of topics affecting the Muslim community and modern society things such as art science and various social issues Uh, there's so much more it's really best if you just listen to a clip I have a clip here that I'm going to play for you in just a moment so Listen to this clip and get an idea of the kind of things that you'll hear if you subscribe to Cafe Tanwer.
1: You look at the data from like previous years, 2018, 2019, 2016, Muslims were less likely to be politically engaged in other faith communities. They had like the lowest voter registration. And as far as Congress goes, you know, only 17% reached out to the member of Congress in 2019, which is the lowest of all faith groups. It's pretty dismal. You know, it's it's really sad because that I believe is directly tied to how we are treated by politics, politicians, the political establishment, the media, we don't have a voice in in these places especially on like the federal level I would say people are doing a lot better, yes. Especially what happened after the 2016 elections where Muslims were like, oh shoot, I didn't vote and look what happened. So they, they've they been getting more engaged on the local level for sure. The federal level, there's been a lot of interest. There is still way more to go, especially when you're thinking, I think younger people are more interested. Definitely like for us in our workshops, it's a lot of younger people that reach out, but we've also trained aunties and uncles. I would say it's getting better, but yeah, we, we still have a long ways to go. We probably are still the least politically engaged. Community. That's my guess.
2: I wanted to just add that yes, we're the least politically engaged if we're talking about electorally and like civic engagement, or yeah. voting, right? Mm-hmm. I think that Muslims um, in this country, historically, especially Black folks in our communities, have always been leading on political conversations, but that's mm-hmm. not necessarily tied to right. voting. So it's always really important to talk about, like, okay, well, within like political engagement, yeah. what exactly what does that mean? About? Yeah. And I love to remember, like, the idea of, you know, when we talk about our ancestors, it's it's talking about the the Yemenis and Arab Americans who are part of the United Farmers Movement in California who are pushing for workers' rights in the farms, right? It's talking about Black Muslims who were in prisons that were working for prisoners' rights, you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago. It's talking about all of those folks, too, when we're talking about what, you know, whether or not Muslims are political, right? So I think when it comes to stats on like civic and electoral engagement, you know those are growing and they were limited before. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think, you know, uh, as far as you know whether or not Muslims are politically engaged, I'd say yes. Of course we've been. There's there's no way that you were Muslim in this country, especially for Black folks, and you weren't political.
3: Right. And as Wagda noted, it's it's not just a sort of demand issue, it's a supply issue in terms of the parties providing platforms that are amenable to the Muslim community and accepting of their endorsements and their views being integrated into their platforms. You know, the Muslim community in terms of its voting behavior has shifted more so than any other community over time. Uh, We're talking about 1988, sort of some support for Dukakis and uh, the Arab American community being rebuffed by Dukakis in that election, that endorsement, um, leading to a shift towards the Republican Party, with George Bush receiving, I think, the highest proportion of votes uh, received by a Republican candidate, by the Muslim community, over 70 uh, percent support, at least according to polls then you have 9-11 happen and a shift towards the democratic party but really even in that shift towards the democratic party a sort of tepid one right not one that is Uh, uh, that is necessarily uh, embraced by either the Democratic Party or the Muslim community, a sort of what other option do we have if we're going to protect our rights and and our freedoms here? And uh, what you tend to see is a lot of people who don't uh, associate with a political party at all. So I think there's like a 2009 study, it was really about religiosity or, or Muslims and religiosity and how that affects their political party identification. And in that study, people who tended to be more religious just tend to do uh, identify with no party more so than than others, um, and in part because no party really strongly represents their values and preferences. Um, and the Democratic Party has been viewed as a weak ally of the Muslim community, even in recent years.
1: I think back to even just in 2016, during those elections, how Muslims were securitized, and it was the worst thing ever to like have Bill Clinton stand on the DNC stage and be like, yeah, if you want to fight terrorism, then stay. I mean, there's a reason why we're pushing back on Democrats, because you can't you can't just, uh, you know, expect that we're going to back you 100 percent all the time when you're making ridiculous statements like that. Engagement goes two ways. Right.
2: People vote because obviously there's a feeling of democratic duty for some, but for others, there's a feeling that you're you're buying into something. You're getting something in return. And for our community for a long time, as Amar talked about, we haven't felt like we've gotten much in return except for more wars, more destruction, more droning and more disenfranchisement. There's a feeling that, you know, in the eyes of the Democratic Party, the worth and the value of American Muslims is for our foreign policy and national security perspective. Right. That we have to be, you know, the, the, the good Muslims, the moderate Muslims in order to be accepted.
0: You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash Middle East to find other episodes in this series. To learn more about the life of the last messenger of God, subscribe to our other show, The Prophet Muhammad Podcast. If you enjoyed these podcasts, please leave a five-star rating and review and share with your friends and family. The Islamic History Podcast is 100% listener-supported. You can support our work and get access to exclusive content by becoming a member of Islamic History Exclusive. Visit islamichistoryx.com for more information. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium shows. You can also make a one-time donation by visiting islamichistorypodcast.com slash donate or send a tip via Cash App using the cash tag Islamic History. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is the podcast exclusively for Patreon subscribers of the Islamic History Podcast. In this series, we are going over the life of Salahuddin al-Ayubi, known to the West as Saladin. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the Battle of Hattin. But before we get into that, let's begin with a recap of where we are so far. From 1183 to 1185, Salahuddin launches several raids into Frankish Palestine and Transjordan. The Franks, stymied by infighting and weak leadership, are unable to respond appropriately. Baldwin IV dies in 1186 and his eight-year-old nephew, Baldwin V, takes the throne. Salahuddin falls gravely ill in the winter of 1186 and his empire almost disintegrates. Once he recovers, Salahuddin makes peace with the Zangis and Mosul becomes a vassal. And with that, let's discuss the Battle of Hattin, one of the most important events in Muslim history. The Ayyubid Empire By the spring of 1186, things were looking pretty good for Salahuddin. He had a truce with the Franks and an alliance with the Byzantines. His empire stretched from North Africa to Anatolia. And now that Mosul had been subjugated, he was even on good terms with the Abbasid Caliph. Of course, Salahuddin still had to deal with the multiple personalities helping him run his vast empire. Salahuddin wanted to prepare his sons to take over after he was gone. In order to do so, he installed his sons, all of whom were still teenagers, in high positions within the empire. His eldest son, al-Afdal, was about 16 years old and was brought in to govern Damascus alongside Salahuddin. In truth, however, Salahuddin was grooming his son for leadership. His second oldest son, Al-Aziz Uthman was 14 years old and ruled over Egypt. However, his uncle, Al-Adil, served as his Atabeg and did most of the heavy lifting. Finally, his 13-year-old son, and according to some reports, his favorite, Al-Zahir, was put in charge of Aleppo, also with an advisor to guide him.